0: Welcome. If uh, I have not had the chance to meet you, my name is Joshua Kirstein. I'm privileged to be the preaching pastor here at Disciples Church, and uh, excited for our time together. Uh, before I jump into our new sermon series in the book of Ephesians, I wanted to say and take a moment to say thank you. Uh, if you don't know, uh, this last June marked my 20th year in full-time pastoral ministry Uh, 17 of those years have been here in this church. Uh, Six of those years have been in the role uh, of preaching pastor. And in 2013, our church leadership committed to start supporting and investing into uh, my health and longevity uh, in pastoral ministry by planning for uh, and providing for me to go on sabbatical. Uh, Every five years. Uh, And so this last week concluded my first summer sabbatical. Uh, And I want to say thank you because it was great. Um, It was uh, a joyful time. And uh, just to give you just a a, a 10-second highlight reel, uh, I got to put over 6,000 miles on my Harley uh, this summer And enjoyed many states in our beautiful country with my brothers in the club. Uh, Lots of time in the pool with my kids and family. Um, We made great family memories. Uh, Many of those were out on the golf course and uh, running around with my kids doing different things. Uh, I had a, a great time of just being refreshed to just being God's word to be still before our Lord. Uh, which was a high privilege and blessing. And uh, my wife and family were very thankful because for the last three months, uh, they have had my full-time attention uh, and time. So uh, praise God, praise God. I, it was a fun and restful break. i um, thankful for your support and for your prayers. I am especially thankful for uh, our elders and leadership team uh, for they logged hundreds of extra hours to fill the gap, uh, to work really hard to keep me out of the the daily happenings of ministry. Um, it, it was it was pretty funny because I'm very involved in a lot of things, and so I would catch Jennifer on the phone with the elders handling situation, talking, praying. And, hey, wait, wait, what's up? She's like, I ain't telling you. <laughs> All right. All right. Good. I see. So just uh, just thankful, man. They, they really carried a lot this summer. Uh, their families gave up a lot so that our family could be blessed. So will you join me in just saying thank you to them uh, with a round of applause. It's uh, it's just a joy. It's a joy to be back. It's a joy to be here with you. Uh, I stood here yesterday as we hung the cross for the new series and did a light check, and I just said, I've done this for a long time, but I'll tell you what, this is a little weird standing here. So, um, so I'm excited. I'm excited to, to be back. God is good. He is doing a great work in our church, a 130 old church, this new season of revival and, and reformation. Many of you were getting to meet and grow in the Lord with and see his, his life-changing gospel work in your life. And uh, praise God for all that He is and all that He's doing. Um, One of the ways that God is at work in our church um, and that we aim to be God-centered and god glorifying in our church is to preach the Word of God expositionally. Uh, Which means that we make it a priority to preach through books of the Bible as given to us by our Lord, verse by verse, to be diligent in effort to understand God's Word as He has given it to us. This is in opposition to the very popular modern-day practice that many churches and preachers have fallen into, um, which is topical preaching where pastors often will have sermon series where they're choosing different scriptures essentially to make their point for the morning, to tell you what they want you to hear. And this often leads to a bigger word that we call eisegesis, by which the preacher or the teacher is imposing their view or talking points on the Scriptures. In opposite of this, we value highly the long-held practice of exegesis, which is the technical and grammatical expression of drawing out what a particular passage of God's Word means in is saying. My aim is to say to you in preaching God's Word, this is what God's Word says to us, and in every way possible to help us get out of the way so that God will work in His power to teach us His Holy Word as He intends it to be taught and understood. Um, It has been a wonderful blessing, church, to see in this last decade and and, and especially these last few years, the blessing of just how many of you have grown in your faith and your understanding of who God is, uh, your fight against sin, your, your desire to serve Him um, by, by this practice, by God's blessing us with a faithful commitment to this practice. Um, and so we want to continue to be faithful in it. Um, with that, it is my pleasure privilege to launch into this new sermon series through the letter of Ephesians. And uh, this is a special letter, church. It really, really is. Those of you who know that uh, are, are extra jazzed about this time in the life of our church and the, the year or so probably to come that we'll spend in these six chapters to really walk through and study God's Word. Um, while all, all Scripture is God-breathed, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, And for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. That's 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. While that's true, there are um, just a certain love in terms of endearment and and areas of emphasis that we can often treasure in God's Word. uh, That to us are, are maybe more precious. Not that any part of God's Word is better than the others, but but are precious to us, are special. And so with that said, many of the best and brightest pastors and theologians uh, of old have had some of the following to say about this letter of Ephesians. Um, it's the queen of the epistles. It is the, the greatest, maturest, and for our time, the most relevant of all of Paul's writings. Uh, it is the, the grand canyon of Scripture Meaning, uh, it's breathtakingly beautiful, uh, inexhaustible in one's efforts to take it all in. I love Sinclair Ferguson, Pastor Sinclair Ferguson's commentary on Ephesians, when he says, In its opening doxology, blessings cascade down on the reader. In its closing verse, the smell of the battlefield lies heavily in the air, and through the smoke of war, we see Christians, full cad and armor of spiritual warfare, still standing. From beginning to end, Ephesians sets before us the wonder of God's grace, the privilege of belonging to the church, and the pattern of life transformed the gospel produces. James Montgomery Boy says it this way, What is the great appeal of this book? In my judgment, it is just this. It presents the basic doctrines of Christianity comprehensively, clearly, practically, and winsomely. My hope in in sharing with you these perspectives of high compliment on this letter of Ephesians is to stir your excitement, if not already had. I know many of you are very excited for the journey we're about to take together in the weeks and months and year to come. But but more so, it is to see that if these praises and high compliments are true of God's Word in the letter to the Ephesians, how much more true are they of the God they testify to? Amen? Think about that. Praise be to God. Disciples, family, we are, we are in for a treat as we dive into this great letter of Ephesians, and I'm privileged to be the one appointed to lead us through it. My hope today is to preach the first verse of the letter as a form of introduction in order to give us specific insight into the author, the audience, the setting, the focal point of this letter. There's much given in this opening introduction that we're often guilty of passing right by. And I pray there's a sweetness of our time together that you're blessed to know and savor our God all the more because of it. Look with me now in your Bibles to the letter of Ephesians. You'll find it in your New Testament if you haven't turned there already. I encourage you to bring your Bibles every week to church. I know you have it on your phones. I know we put it on the screens. But I I want our time together to be all the more a moment for you to become familiar with the Holy Scriptures, to wear that book out, to get used to having it with you so much more often. And so look with me at this first verse, Ephesians 1.1. 1, 1. <clears throat> Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul starts his letter with an introduction to himself. And so we'll start there as well. But first, let me pray. Father, you are a good God. Praise be to you, our holy God. Worthy, excellent, righteous, graceful. We love you. Maybe some in the room don't yet know you to love you. To love you rightly, fully. Because they're... Well, maybe they have some religion in their background or, or some working knowledge of the Bible. They, they don't know you. They, they're still in their sin. They're, they're still the Lord of their own lives. And yet you, in your amazing grace, have ordained to set captives free. To move... Mightily, with the greatest life change an eternal life change that we, that we could ever know, by the work of your son, by the perfect will of your glory we, we, we come ready, we come excited. I ask that you would bring great life change, transformation, maturity, sanctification, that there'd be genuine fight. For sin repentance and confession of sin there'd be a growing trust of you embrace of of you our god to to not just be something we say is a part of our life but that our days and our lives are about you and with you and for you this church exists to glorify you through lives that are being transformed by the gospel of jesus christ and we are privileged to be your people And so, move in this place, Holy Spirit. Bring clarity. Give me clarity of your word. Be not only in the preaching, but in the hearing. That we would remove the distractions, that we'd lean in, that we'd be all in for what you would have for us today and in our journey through this letter to come. We love you. We worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ephesians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Here we are given Paul's name and title. Before I talk about his title, I want to take a moment to consider who Paul is and where he's from. Paul was born a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. He was named after Israel's first king, His name at birth, Saul. Before saved by Jesus, Saul was a Pharisee who was trained with a deep, high understanding of the Jewish law. Under the tutelage, Gamal the Elder, he was highly respected uh, in the authority of that day. For his training, what he knew And so Saul had a deep passion, a zeal for the Jewish traditions, which is why he was so fiercely opposed to the emergence of Christianity and this Jesus Christ, the testimony and the movement of Christians, and saw them as dangerous to Judaism. Saul grew to be known for his fervor against Christianity, To the point where he was known for his persecution of them. Even his leadership and approval by which many were killed. Christians were killed. It was on his trip to Damascus. Very famous moment in time because of his testimony. His purpose on that trip was to capture Christians. To persecute them. Saul experienced on, on the road to Damascus. An encounter with the resurrected Christ. Jesus. After which... He was temporarily blinded, but most importantly, in this interaction, God ordains to give Saul saving faith in Jesus Christ to convert him. He would be born again, that he would become a servant, a follower of Jesus. This this person, this group that he was so opposed to, he now was one of them. Paul grows to be devoted with his entire life to Jesus, whose glory he becomes one of the, if not the most influential and important pastors of the early church. Faithful to spread the gospel, no matter the cost on his life. Planting churches and writing much of the New Testament, God's holy word. I could go on and on with what God has done in and through Paul, but I at least wanted to remind you of the amazing transformation he went through in receiving the grace and call of God in his life. I want you to be reminded that no person you are or know is too far away from the sovereign work of God. To bring new life. No matter what's in your or their record. Adultery, lust, murder, abuse, swindling, dishonesty. God is able to save, to make new, the most wretched person you are or know. Amen? Let us be overwhelmed at the simple testimony of, of Saul, who would go on to be referred to by his Christian brothers as Paul in his forward ministry. I'm thankful for God's work in his life and for his work through Paul in writing this letter. Paul refers to himself uh, by his title as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. An apostle is one who is sent. They're sent with a message. They're a messenger. Speaking of the sent ones, Jesus gives this important clarity in the Gospel of John 13, 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. This is an important clarity because the potency of the messenger and the message is determined by the authority of the one sending the messenger of the one whose message is being delivered in paul's case he is sent out by god himself we know this because although he was not one of the 12 disciples paul had received a direct commission from the lord jesus himself now, it's important to note there are a couple of different ways that the title Apostle is used in Scripture. While the general meaning of sent one or messenger applies to all these different uses of the word Apostle, there is a special group of Apostles that Paul was a part of that's critically important to understand, especially because this group of capital A Apostles does is not at work anymore. They, they had a, an assignment for a time to do a very important task. I'm speaking of the select individuals directly appointed and authorized by Jesus Christ to be His immediate representatives on earth. Those who would speak a new and authoritative word from God and thereby were appointed to be His infallible mouthpiece and to write the New Testament and launch the church of Jesus Christ that we are now a part of today. In this same sense, we're speaking of what we call capital A apostles to try to bring some um, discernment or, or, or uh, understanding of difference between that and the more widespread use of the word apostle or sent one. Twelve disciples and the Apostle Paul are are these capital-A Apostles. Paul will refer later in chapter 4 of Ephesians that the Apostles are the ones uh, of the gift that Christ gave His church. Uh, Ephesians 4.11, God gave the Apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds, and the teachers. These roles are are gifted assignments. They're, They're not just Things that anyone picks up. There's specific gifts that God gives to the church, specific roles that that come with qualification and important um, work for different times in God's perfect will and plan. What we must rightly understand is that the gifted role of the office of apostle, in this sense of which Paul was one, was a temporary one empowered and purposed by God for a specific season in the launch of the church. To be clear, there are no more capital A apostles like the Twelve or like Paul today. What God did in and through them in the early church is very special and a key part of His plan. So how do we know that the capital A apostles, as we like to refer to them, were only for a time, were only this select group? because to be a true Apostle in this sense, they had to meet three very critical criteria according to Scripture. Let's review what those are quickly, because we're going to see this again later in our series. I want to lay a foundation now. Number one, they had to be a witness of the resurrected Christ. Most of these guys walked with, were trained by Jesus, and or were directly interacted with the resurrected Christ, commissioned by Him. Uh, Acts 1, Acts 10, 1 Corinthians 9, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 8 and 9, speak of this reality that they had to be a witness of the life of Christ, of His resurrection, to be qualified as an apostle in this way. These were men who were disciples and witnesses to Jesus Himself. Think about the special blessing of that appointment in that time. Number two, they... To be an apostle in this way, you had to personally be appointed by Jesus, by the sovereign Christ. In Acts 1-2, apostles are referred to as those whom he had chosen. Even at the end of chapter 1 of Acts, uh, when they're seeking to replace Judas, uh, who had gone out from them, astray, denied Christ, in their prayer they say to the Lord, "'Show which one of these two you have chosen. This is your appointment, Lord.'" Thirdly, to be an apostle in this way, you had to be able to work miracles. In Matthew 10, 1 through 2 Jesus called him to his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. In 2 Corinthians twelve twelve, The signs of the true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So they had to be able to work miracles. So when you look at these three qualifications, we realize immediately that no one alive today meets these three qualifications. This is why we know that the New Testament gift of apostleship in the capital A way we're speaking of it has ceased. It was used by God for a season, for a time. The Lord is no longer giving the gift and authority and work of apostleship in this way. One of the critical roles that the apostles had, consider how high this call is, was to write God, God's Word. What He would ordain to be the New Testament. The Word of God. God's Word is clear to tell us that the holy canon is closed. There's not new letters being added. There's not new words being added. It's finished. It's closed. The work of God revealing Himself is complete and sufficient in Holy Scripture. So additionally, the work of apostleship in this way is no longer needed to bring forth a new word of God. Be leery of someone who says, I have a word from the Lord that's not the words of Scripture. That is someone claiming... The authority of capital A apostleship. And that is not happening in today's day and age. It is not needed. Scripture is enough. Back to Ephesians. I say all of this so that we would understand when, when, when Paul says that he's an apostle by the will of God, that this is a high call in Paul's life. Giving him the authority to write this letter and why we still study it today with vigor. Passion, faithfulness, what God wants us to know of Him. The authority given to Him to help launch the church and plant and and bring accountability and discipline to correct mistruths and lead people back to the true gospel. A work that was laid that has set the table for us for generations to come. So when Paul introduces himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, see with me the authority, the credentials that he is bringing with him to say what is about to be said. How often are we guilty of studying God's Word? And these introductions we, we read and we fly right by. And, and, and I just pray that there just be a, a slowing down to really see why every word Why every descriptor, why everything that God's put here is for our good. Help us grow and mature in Him. Maybe to see that I'm only preaching verse 1 today, you're starting to go, okay, I'm starting to get how this is going to work out. Because a moment ago you were feeling really cheated. Like, really? Only verse 1? Let's get to the good stuff. May we hear the words of Paul, church ordained by the will of God God's word for us to read it to know it to be transformed by it to be submissive to it not right in our own eyes church this is the word of God This is the source of all truth and the message of life that we are desperate for. I I pray your your passion to get here today, the clearing of your schedule, whatever you might have done, to be in a faithful Bible-preaching church on a Sunday morning, is a commitment that you will uphold faithfully, faithfully, in the weeks and months and lifetime to come, that we'd be beyond a haphazard way of working our weekends, that yeah, we might get to church this week, but instead be faithful to gathering together with the saints to study God's holy word, to submit ourselves to it, because we are desperate for what God would have for us in faith and life. Amen? Let's look at who Paul is writing to now in the second part of our sermon, an introduction to the city of Ephesus. It says in the second part of verse 1, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Before we get into who is Ephesus, a little clarity of textual variance. While this letter is addressed to the saints in Ephesus, it is largely believed for a number of reasons, I don't have time to get into today. I started to write out all this good textual work and go, yeah, I'm going to completely bore everyone. So, for a number of good reasons, Paul's aim for this letter is described to be to the believers of the region of Ephesus. Ephesus and the reason why is because Ephesus had become a major hub of commerce and communication in, in this wing of Asia, So by sending this letter to the saints in Ephesus, it would be more easily distributed to the region and even the Laodiceans. Some have gone on to say it's actually really written for the Laodiceans. and um, Some have have picked at the fact that Paul doesn't have uh, personal greetings like he does in his other letters, especially with a church like the church in Ephesus that he spent so much time with. Why are they not personal? And so it's I'm getting into it. It's some of those reasons why it is understood to be that while addressed to Ephesus and and very much for the the Christians there, it was also intended to be spread throughout that region and for a larger audience is the quick and fast reason why. Um, Who is Ephesus? Let's take a moment to really consider. Originally a Greek colony, Ephesus became the capital of Asia in that day. Geographically, Ephesus is located in what we now call Turkey. Uh, it was the, the chief commercial communication link between Rome and the East. A kind of melting pot for the nations. Greek and Roman, Jew and Gentile, were free to mingle in Ephesus. Ephesus had become this major city, although under Roman rule in that Time and day in the writing of this letter, it was a largely free and self-governed area. Most notably, Ephesus was known for a structure, the Temple of Diana, also called the Temple of Artemis. You see in the picture behind me; it's massive. In Greek mythology and belief, looking at that Greek system of, of belief, apart from God's will and word. Artemis was believed to be the goddess of the hunt of fertility. Um, Hunt and fertility. And because she was the goddess of these things, people thought that she would be the one they should look to so their crops would grow, so they would have children in abundance. And so this all affected their culture in a major way and the superstitions and the false religious beliefs and practices that came with the presence of the temple of Artemis. It was actually later deemed one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, it's, again, it's huge in its size and grandeur, as we see uh, um, portrayals of it now, looking back. In Paul's day, the local economy was largely driven by merchants of the temple trinkets, trinkets and, and tourist activity. It's kind of like having a motel on the street right across from Disneyland. You're kind of smart to put Mickey's face all over the front of your motel so that the kids go, yeah, let's stay there. Like, that's Disneyland. I remember the first time when, I took, when we took Noah when he was real little, and we were just on the boulevards around Disneyland, but there's so much Mickey Mouse and so much Disneyland, he thought we were there, <laughs> even though we weren't there, right? And so... It, that, that's what this is. Just the commercial, the the, the volume, the the business that's being done uh, is just is overwhelming. It drives the culture in this area of Ephesus. Um, with the Greek influences of spiritual mysticism and even sorcery, it just became a center stage for pagan spiritual practices for false idol worship. Acts nineteen thirty five. Um. Paul says, And when the town clerk had quieted down the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesus, of the Ephesians, is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Paul has interaction with the Ephesians in, in this time. And uh, looking back, Paul's first Recorded uh, interaction with this area was after his 18 months in Corinth. At the conclusion of his second missionary journey, he sails to Ephesus with Priscilla and Aquila. This is where he entered in the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Priscilla and Aquila would go on to continue their ministry in the area while Paul would leave and then come back later for a second visit. In that second visit, he would remain there two years. Do much important work from that, from that area. Um, his gospel ministry and influence are used by the Lord to do a major work in the region, the work of the church, the, the fighting for biblical truth, for gospel truth. We read a lot of that in Acts 19 and 20 if you're interested to dig more into that. So then another question that comes up is, wh- where is Paul when he's writing this letter now to the Ephesians? Paul speaks clearly in our letter that we'll see throughout our journey through it. In Ephesians 3, 1, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 20, that he's in chains. He's, He's imprisoned writing this letter to the Ephesians. It's largely understood that while in prison, Paul wrote four pastoral letters, referred to as epistles. These four were addressed to the believers in Ephesus, Colossae, Philippi, and also to Philemon. While Paul was held captive in Caesarea for over two years, that was part of Paul's captivity. Paul was captive a lot, because he was a big mouthpiece for Christianity, and the governing agencies didn't like it. So he spent a lot of time in jail, fighting for his faith. While he was captive in Caesarea for those two years, it is Understood that these pastoral epistles, including this letter to the Ephesians, was written while he was in prison in Rome. I take time to point this out because I want you not to miss Paul's heart. Paul is full of joy. You think about the letter he wrote to the church in Philippi, to Colossae, to the Ephesians. I mean, these are... Amazing letters. The letter of the church in Philippi is considered the book on joy in all of Scripture. And yet he's falsely imprisoned, being beaten, being starved. He has has no, no actual source of joy in his current circumstances, but he's writing about joy overflowing. He's full of joy and praise. For what? For the grace and the work of God in his life and in his fellow Christians' lives to the believers, despite his terrible circumstances and being in jail. This is his mode, his his mood, his, his words of encouragement for the church. Church, see Paul physically imprisoned. I want you to think about seasons lately where you have felt like, man, my life is not going good right now. These the things are bad. And then just hold that up against, when was the last time you spent lengthy amounts of time falsely imprisoned? Because I'm... I'm betting that if that's where I'm at, yeah, that's going to really trump a lot of bad stuff I've gone through. He's suffering. He's physically suffering. But he's spiritually free. He's full of joy because of who he is in Christ Jesus. Oh, how I pray this is our reality in Christ No matter the hardships we face, we rest in Christ, our joy and our strength. Amen? The second part of verse 1, Paul says, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul says to the saints in Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. These are two important descriptors. That Paul uses. I want to slow down and really look at them this morning. First, he calls them saints. This is a term Paul often uses in his writings in the New Testament to identify God's redeemed people. When Paul calls Christians saints, understand this is a reference not to their holy performance. Because man's performance in and of himself is anything but holy. Our performance falls far short of God's holy standard. Scripture is clear that we are guilty under the law of God and fall short of the glory of God. Roman Catholics give the title saint to certain select people after they die to give credit to a faithful or what they would call a well-lived practice or performance in their life. And this is just simply not biblical. This is not the biblical use of the word saint. The ones who are called saints in Scripture are those who have been forgiven and redeemed and justified not based on their performance, but on the performance of another. Think about that with me. This other person is the only person who ever fully satisfied the law of God and lived for the glory of God and not for his own. And he did it without sin, without stain. He is the one who then gave his perfection so that he could take on our guilt. This person is God the Son, who took on flesh and died in the place of undeserving sinners. This person's name is Jesus Christ. Only in Christ are we made new, forgiven, and declared righteous in God's eyes. Only in Christ are we called saints. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is past and the new has come. Only for those who trust their lives to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, only for those for whom Christ died and whom God gave saving faith, have an old identity that was called sinner, and now have a new identity that is called saint. How is this possible? Listen carefully to these couple passages from other letters of Paul, first to the church in Colossae, Colossians 2, 13-14. And you who, catch this, were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And the people of God said, Amen. Right? Amen. This is the gospel. That's the good news. How about Romans 5.8? God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were sinners... Actively sinning, practicing sin, all we did was sin. While we were in that state, Christ died for us. Were, past tense. Yes, it is still true that we Christians sin at times, but we are no longer defined as sinners. We are no longer enslaved as sinners. We're no longer bound by sin. We have been freed, according to Scripture, by the power of sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. The old self has been crucified with Christ. The Bible tells us that those who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb are washed clean, are made holy in the eyes of God, and as a result are called saints. So when Paul refers to Christians as saints, when we refer to each other as the saints, we're not going, you know, if I call Steve a saint, I'm not saying like, man, Steve's performance lately is just saintly. No, I'm acknowledging Jesus' atonement in his place, the perfection of Jesus on his life before a holy God. He is a saint. The Bible tells us that all of us who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb are made holy in the eyes of God, are called saints. The Greek word for saint, hagios, means honorable, holy. Saints in the new covenant are those who have been cleansed by the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ, his sacrifice in our place those who have been cleansed and made holy by the perfect blood of Jesus Christ in their place, those who are therefore separated from the world and consecrated to God, the saints in Christ have been set apart by God. This is Paul's emphasis. In, this, in the whole first half of this letter, he's going to highlight the work of God to choose and save and set apart his elect, his people. He wants us to understand this church, what it means to be a saint in Christ Jesus. Christian, I ask you today, do you see yourself as a saint if you belong to Jesus? Do you rightly see who you are in Christ, or do you um, immaturely or naively all too much focus on only your performance and then thereby what that means? Do you rightly see that sin does not have enslaving power over you any longer? It breaks my heart to watch people who claim to be Christians, people who claim to be in the power of, of God, just say, I can't do this anymore. I, I, I can't overcome this thing. You're lying if you're in Christ because you have the power in Christ to overcome it. You are denying who you are in Christ. Maybe you aren't in Christ. Or maybe what you're doing is refusing to understand who you are in Christ and thereby giving in to some, some immature or, or naive or, or, or light-sided view of, of, of what He's done for you. This is Paul's aim in referring to those he's writing to and calling them saints. The power and righteousness of Christ is upon you to live for him and his glory. Christian, do not be defined by the world or by your performance apart from Christ. Be defined by Christ. Be empowered by Christ. Christ in you. You are a saint in Jesus Christ. I implore you, fellow Christian, servant of Jesus Christ, child of God, to stop living out of your old identity as sinner and to start living for your master in your new identity, who is Christ. Sin is not your master anymore. Christ is. Therefore, live out your new identity as a saint, sanctified and made new in the blood of Jesus Christ. So, men, if you're wrestling with looking at things you shouldn't, stop telling yourself everyone's doing this, that it's just a part of the reality of this world. That's you living out of your old identity. Start reminding yourself, I'm a child of the living God. The power of Christ is in me to turn away from this and to honor Him with my eyes and my time and my doing. Do you see the difference? And whatever it might be, that, that temptation to chase money or, or, or to spend money you don't have, that, that selfishness for how you want things to go, or l- let us live out of our identity in Christ as saints. Sanctified by the blood of Jesus. Make a very practical church. How are you betraying your saintly identity in Christ by living out your old identity in flesh and sin? What compromises are you still clinging to? What filth are you still feeding your eyes and your brain? What lie... Are you still telling? What idol are you still chasing or worshiping? What lust are you still seeking? The perfect Lamb of God was slain and bled out, not so just that we could have heaven, but so that we could live in righteousness for God's glory and others' good right now here on earth. Amen? So listen again, to the saints who are in Ephesus. In his opening words, Paul reminds his fellow redeemed, blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ, that they are indeed saints in Christ. He also refers to them as, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Faithful in Christ Jesus. The word faithful here means believing. Those who believe into Jesus but it's not past tense. It's active. It is those who are exercising true faith in Jesus Christ. It's not just that they believed for a moment, said a prayer, walked an aisle, they're good, they've got Jesus, now they move on. No, they're believing. They trust in Him. They're walking in faith. Those who believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior are the believers. is not a one-time activity of belief it's a new way of living being born again means being born into walking by faith in the lord no longer living in sin to the flesh living in faith believing in christ i want us to see paul link these two together saint and faithful because they're inseparable The great reformer John Calvin said it this way, No one is a believer who is not holy. No one who is holy is not a believer. To refer to the believers in Ephesus as the faithful in Christ Jesus is to highlight their call to live lives that are set apart for God and His glory. We will see that this is Paul's emphasis in the second part of this letter. That, that saintly description is a big emphasis in the first three chapters, and in the last three chapters, this emphasis of, of, of living out that faith for the glory of God. So see with me that Paul's words in just this first verse are, are, are what they're doing to set the table for what is to come. The saints in the region of Ephesus were confronted on a daily basis with Gentile paganism. They lived under the shadow of this huge temple of Artemis, false worship. They lived in an ungodly society filled with self-indulgence and mysticism. They were spiritually at war and needed to be reminded who they are in Christ and what His grace and peace and power meant for them in their daily walk. We, too, need to see that we are confronted daily these sinful realities that surround us, a culture that's lost, that's pursuing sin headlong. We need to be reminded of who we are in Christ, the gospel realities that undergird our faith as we live in this twisted and corrupt generation. Californian, our hope is not the governor. American, your hope is not the presidency. Modern day person, your hope is not the advancements of of investments in technology and roads. No, our hope and our power is Jesus Christ. We need to be reminded of these truths. To put off getting caught up and swept away like an unbeliever is. To slow down our crying about how things aren't going right. And to speed up our testimony about who Jesus is and how he's at work. Notice something here with me in the second part of this verse that's very special. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Those that Paul is writing to are in two places at once. They're in Ephesus, and they're also in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul wants to address in his letter. In chapter 1 through 3, Paul will describe what it means to be in Christ Jesus. That phrase we're going to see in Scripture and in this letter again and again and again, it's why it's in our byline and and, uh, the basis of this series, in Christ or in Him. Oh, how I pray you see how important of our Christian identity this is as we study. Paul uses this phrase, in Christ or in Him, nine times in the first 23 verses. And 164 times in all of his letters and writings in the New Testament. This is surely a huge emphasis. God wants us to understand what it means to be in Christ, in Him. Then in chapters 4 through 6, Paul will describe how we who are in Christ are to live out our new life in Jesus while on mission and at war in our very own Ephesus. Church, the reality that we who are saved are in Christ, is so important. We must grow in our understanding of this. Just the the few metaphors that lurk within Scripture, New Testament Scripture, many of them are in Ephesians. For example, in Ephesians 5, chapter 5, it will be a while before we get there. We just did verse 1 today. (laughs) Ephesians 5, 23-33, the union of a man and a woman in marriage. This union is about Christ and His church. What it means to be in Christ. In John chapter 15, 1-17, Jesus is speaking about a union of the vine and the branches. What it means to be in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, 20-22, there's a union of the holy temple of God. The, the cornerstone who is Christ, the foundation, and the stones who are the church. The people of the church who make up the structure. We sang about it this morning. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12-27, through 27, the union of the head of the body and the other members of the body make up one body. What it means to be in Christ. Our union with Christ is our very identity as a Christian. Oh, how we must better understand it and then live it out. This is a high focus of Paul in this letter and why we elders chose this sermon series for this time for our church. Church, our access to this letter in God's holy word is truly a great blessing. We have it, we have it in our language, we can study it. May we come hungry and faithful to the truths of God that He has ordained for us. My plan and preparation this morning until about 20 minutes ago, or before before, 20 minutes before the service was to preach verse 1 and 2 today I have about 2,000 words for verse 2 already written for next week because I'm like looking at it going we only have time for verse 1 praise God Um, it was a a wonderful time of study to prepare I look forward to what's ahead but let me read verse 2 and 3 which is my belief that that's what we'll study next week together And the amazing blessings of God. Let's look forward to what's to come. Paul's words in verse 2 and 3. Ephesians chapter 1, 2 through 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Oh boy. I can't wait. Stand with me. And let's go to God in prayer and prepare our hearts to praise His holy name. In a closing song this morning, I encourage you to stick around so I can share with you some thoughts as we leave. God, we thank you for this time you've given us in your holy word and corporate worship and prayer, fellowship. You are a good God and, and mighty to be praised. Oh, Lord, we are blessed. You have done a work that we could never attain to be called saint, to be called redeemed, to be called forgiven, to be called the child of God. This is a work of Your grace that we are are just amazed by, that we will forever testify. The gospel of grace. Lord, for anyone in this room today who who walked through these doors and, and has yet to have a clear and saving knowledge of Christ as Savior and Lord, I just pray that they see Your grace, they see Your love, that they would rightly see their guilt and their performance that falls far short, their need for a Savior, and their desperate cry to You that Jesus alone saves and sets free you would make people new this morning give them new birth and faith in you to to walk from this place a new creation readied for for baptism and testimony to, to live a new life according to Christ and for his glory and we who are your saints we who are your faithful in the Lord Jesus may we be encouraged may we be reminded who we are what you've done that it would well up in us an attitude of praise, a focus on you, a, a bold testimony of you this week, and a hunger for what is in store. Lord, it's a, there's a blessed assurance to know that it's not by my work or will, but yours alone, that you would be praised and exalted by your people. Now and forevermore, in Jesus' name we pray.